This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. time of great need for our nation during the pandemic, Americans saw and celebrated an army of physician heroes, and in doing so, they overlooked an unforeseen reality that true heroicism by physicians has actually yet to be realized. In the coming years, heroic physician leadership will be the crucible for the kindling of imagination to reshape our nation's healthcare system through economic reform. However, for physicians to lead, they're going to need an educational guide for navigating the business of medicine in order to optimize their leadership potential. And that's where this week's guest comes in. Dr. Ellis Mack Knight, in his new book, Healthcare Economic Reform, How and Why Physicians Must Lead Change Within Our Evolving Healthcare Economy, is really a guiding light for physicians in, in the darkness as we look towards the light of value-based care and I've come to know Dr. Knight over these last few months. I wrote the foreword for his book. He's a, a trusted colleague. He's a value-minded physician. He's unrelenting in his push for change in the healthcare system. And he's really thinking about how do we improve the patient experience and quality of care and the economic viability of the healthcare system during these challenging times. And I think he has a lot of great perspectives to really guide physicians and create empowerment in this uh, nexus that we're entering into in the value movement. So Daniel, I'm, I'm interested to kind of hear your thoughts uh, after we talked to Mac this afternoon, how we can best empower physicians to lead in this new era of economic reform and healthcare. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Dr. Knight, you know, such an interesting conversation. And we all know physicians as those that are generally called to the practice of medicine, and they have this deep sense of altruism. They take the sacred oath to treat the ill to the best of their ability. But this act of compassion is not necessarily heroic. By working complicitly in a healthcare industry that's heavily regulated, massively subsidized, and full of structural distortions, even knowingly compromise their ethical and moral code, to do their best for patients. I mean, don't get me wrong, doctors wanna serve their patients well, but they also behave rationally in response to economic incentives 
created by an irreparably broken system that generates terrible and perverse results. And Dr. Knight realizes that the time for physician leadership is now to salvage our economy, improve our nation's health and well-being, and restore the humanity that we all want of medicine. And to do this, physicians must provide more than just healing patients in front of them. The physicians must be a reservoir for reimagining a system that can emphasize prevention over treatment. They must call for changes in a way that will lead to transparency, redesigned care delivery processes, lower costs, and improved patient outcomes. The call for physician leadership has never been higher, and the stakes have never been greater. For true healthcare economic reform to occur, we need these physicians to demand change from both an economic and a moral imperative. So are you ready to take your step in your hero's journey as a physician leader, or will you stay on the sideline hoping for a top-down, political, all-encompassing solution to healthcare reform? After hearing this week's podcast, you're going to realize that building an idealized system can only occur via a bottom-up methodology that honors the voices of skilled clinicians on the front lines to design care delivery. So let's go ahead and hear from Dr. Mac Knight as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Dr. Mac Knight, thank you for joining us this week in the Race to Value. It's such an honor to be with you today, and I must tell you, it was a great privilege to be asked to write the foreword to your new book, and I'm excited to discuss this book with our listeners today. Well, thank you, Eric. It's a real pleasure to be here. I was chatting with your colleagues before we went on the air here and telling them that the Race to Value podcast is an integral part of my life and that what little exercise I do. I always like to have something to listen to, and your podcast is ever-present, so uh, thank you. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to join you and share the airwaves, I guess you call them, with the many great guests that you all have. Well, Mac, I really appreciate that support. It certainly means a lot, and this is a labor of love for us here at the Race to Value. We just believe in evangelizing around this important movement and value-based care. And, and I know that's of top of mind for you. And, you know, I was excited to have read your new book. I would just love to be able to just pick your brain. You know, I feel like I'm going to learn so much from you today. So how about we kick it off and, you know, get into some questions? Sure, absolutely. Well, I thought a place to start today would be to talk about free market healthcare. And I really admire your leadership during this important time in the value movement. And, you know, the entire healthcare economy is in need of vast redesign. And you have, with this book, created an educational guide on how the healthcare economy functions. And you've provided a call to action for physicians to lead in a way that they can provide the systematic reforms needed to really improve on cost and quality. And I know you're someone who really believes in the power of capitalism and free markets. And you posit that the two primary schools of thought on how to manage a free market economy, those advanced by John Maynard Keynes and Friedrich Hayek in the 20th century, offer this roadmap towards improvement that applies to the healthcare economy as well. And I know when you were entering the profession of medicine, you were a wide idealist. You entered the profession thinking you could independently and autonomously bring high quality evidence-based care to your patients. And you know, I know this was modeled after the hopes and dreams of your father, having seen him practice medicine as a general practitioner in Southern Idaho. But once you got into the 
machinery of all that we know as the healthcare industry, I know that this economic reality set in where and it's changed your views over time on how to improve the system. So I, I just thought a good place to start today would be to get your thoughts on this. What options do we have right now in reforming our healthcare system? How might the government's efforts be better directed towards providing economic infrastructure where you and your fellow physicians can really get into leading in a high value healthcare system that really does operate like a true free market. I'd love to get your perspective on this, Dr. Knight. Well, thank you. And I think you hit the nail on the head with this first question. What needs to be reformed even more than the healthcare system itself is the healthcare economy. If you even start with the premise of what are goods and services that are traded within the healthcare economy, they're not, I think, what most of us feel that we're trying to produce on the provider side of the healthcare system. By that, I mean, as you mentioned, I was a wide-eyed idealist coming out of high school and college. Grew up in a little town in Idaho where my dad was the solo practitioner. Boy, I went to medical school thinking, I want to help people and I like science. And I don't know if I actually use those exact terms when I had my med school interview, but I know I was probably naive enough at that point to do that. And some, I don't know, 20, even maybe 15 years later, I woke up and realized that the system that I was operating in was very different from the system my dad operated. There was far less autonomy. There was far less looking to providers, particularly physicians, for leadership. And what there was was a business model that had been set up wherein physicians, my colleagues, myself, had abdicated their role of leadership to business professionals who run healthcare systems, who run insurance companies, who run all the businesses that are out there trying to get a piece of the pie of the healthcare economy. And we're doing that by selling, again, goods and services, which I particularly didn't go into medicine in order to try to provide. I'm all for people getting total knee replacements. I'm all for people getting their spinal surgeries when needed. I'm all for patients getting their invasive cardiac procedure. But when those things are emphasized at the expense of things like primary care, like public health, like preventive medicine, like behavioral health care, then I think we've got a healthcare economy that's, again, corrupted to a certain extent and is selling the wrong goods and services and, goodness knows, charging way, way, way too much money for those things. And that is not good for the population. It depends on that system or that economic model for their health and well-being, nor is it very fun to practice medicine in that kind of an environment. Mac, I want to follow up on this idea that you mentioned about, in addition to providing an educational guide for how the healthcare economy works, your book goes into this call to action for physicians to organize and take steps toward making their day-to-day -day activities, delivering healthcare more satisfying. And unlike some industry leaders on the business side of healthcare that consider doctors 
as interchangeable components of the delivery system, you're demanding that they be treated as the professionals they are by empowering them to lead in the value movement. And given that physicians are imbued with so much knowledge, training, and experience, and oftentimes more than any of the other industry participants, how can they be better optimized as agents for change by allowing them to help design, build, and implement these reforms in the way that healthcare services are delivered in our overall economy? Yeah, I think those are great questions and really get kind of at the crux of the matter. So basically, I think that if you look at most healthcare organizations, and I'm going to speak particularly about the ones that I know the most about, and those are large healthcare systems that involve hospitals or multiple hospitals, and also employ a lot of physicians. Those organizations tend to give physicians positions with jobs which put them in the middle of things, but really set up a glass wall, if you will, between the provider side and the administrative management side of healthcare. They're put into a position of trying to keep the wolves at bay, so to speak. Let's give the physicians enough of a leash that they think they're doing okay, but let's certainly not let them have any position of real operational power or input into what healthcare delivery in the 21st century is all about. The eye-opening experience for me was a course that I took at Harvard Business School run by Michael Porter and Robert Kaplan. And in that course, and those two individuals I'm sure you're familiar with are kind of the fathers, if you will, of value-based healthcare reform in this country. And in that course, I learned about things like care process mapping, like cost accounting in healthcare. And I came back to the organization that I was in at that time, very, very excited that, hey, this is exactly what we need to do. We need to get providers around the table. We need to map out exactly how we do things. We need to get the accountants and the finance department involved to give us some uh, idea of what it costs us to deliver care in medicine. And nobody, nobody had any interest in that from the higher C-suite level. And I thought, well, maybe that's just unique to this one organization, you know, not seeing the big picture. And I know from my reading and my other studies that there are places out there that do some of this. I've long been a very, very big fan of Intermountain Healthcare and work that they do. And so I thought, I'm going to see if I can kind of take this show on the road and go out and talk to other healthcare organizations and see what they're doing and see if maybe there's places where they're more open to these kind of ideas. So I joined a German national consulting firm. By that time, I had put together a fairly large 600 provider for hospital clinically integrated network. And uh, I thought I could do this for this hospital system in the Southeast. I could maybe do this for other hospital systems that might want to move in this direction. And again, I got very, very little interest in that. And the reason is, I believe, to really get to the 
root cause of all this is that the relentless pursuit of profit by healthcare organizations within the healthcare economy, driven by the healthcare economy, which thrives on fee-for-service medicine delivery and profit-driven pursuit of, of delivery goods and services, nobody was interested in changing that. And I left consulting very disappointed, very discouraged that there was not more interest in this. And then I, I went back to the bedside and I tried to kind of fulfill my aspirations of oh so many years ago by joining an academic faculty and doing some teaching and some bedside care. But the bottom line is that I just kept thinking, you know, I'm, I'm not doing anything to move the healthcare economy, which I think is the culprit here, in the right direction. And so I wrote a book. And about that same time, also COVID came along. And I think the COVID pandemic has really pulled back the veil and revealed the perverse nature of the healthcare economy and the gaping holes that we have in the healthcare delivery system, not because there's not good people trying to give the best care they can, but because the incentives and the economic rewards of the economy are not there to drive the right thing. I really think we're at a crucial moment in time here uh, after the pandemic. Do we go back to this relentless profit pursuit model? Or do we say, hey, look, this didn't work very good when we had to shut down elective surgeries in a lot of hospitals, we had to shut down a lot of hospitals, period. And we found that we're not very good, again, at preventive care, public health, managing a pandemic. And when the next one comes along, we better get a lot better at that, or we're really going to be behind the eight ball. So there you go. Well, I think you're spot on about the opportunity that we have, Mac, in this post-pandemic era to really think about moving away from this profit-driven system that we have in healthcare. I mean, we simply have to figure out how to better produce, deliver, and distribute healthcare services through economic models that are more patient-centered and less about profit. I mean, we have this sick care system right now that needs to be transitioned to a true healthcare system. I mean, we have to think about healthcare differently and how we define it. And I know as we look at the primary business model right now in the healthcare economy, to your point, it does prioritize profit over everything else. And while profitable financial performance is necessary in a capitalistic free market economy, it should not be the overarching goal within the healthcare economy. I mean, we have to be thinking about how do we deliver high value care to patients? I mean, that should be of paramount importance right now and moving the emphasis away from that profit maximization to value-based care is really going to require a change in the payer paradigm. And I, I know you, you wrote about that in your book. We're at this point right now where health plan profits and CEO compensations for those organizations are at all-time highs. We have this cap on administrative costs in healthcare that's 15% of premiums for group plans and 20% of premiums for individual programs. And that doesn't seem like a lot, but we're talking about a $4 trillion industry. We've created a, a monstrosity in terms of bloated excess with, with regard to the third-party payer system. And commercial insurers really have an opportunity here to, to do things better. And instead of 
trying to minimize the actual medical loss ratio through all these questionable practices like onerous pre-auth requirements and forcing us to contend with monopolization and slow movement to value-based care and rent-seeking behavior. They have this opportunity to really create a, a reimagined healthcare system. So I did want to get your perspective on this whole change that that's going to be required in the new healthcare economy post-COVID to really think about how do, how do we de-emphasize profit, still maintain a viable, economically viable system, but create an exchange process that really protects the interest of providers and patients. I mean, if we do look at a free market system, and let's use that analogy of the invisible hand from Adam Smith, how do we somehow reconfigure the model where that invisible finger of corporatized health plan interests is somehow taken off of the scale. So we have a rebalancing that takes place. If you could provide our listeners with your perspective on the, the payer landscape right now and where we need to go, I'd really appreciate the opportunity to hear your views on that, Mac. Sure, absolutely. I'll start by saying that I certainly didn't write this book because I've got all the answers and all you have to do is read the book and you'll understand what we need to do. One thing I do believe, though, is that there's a lot of smart people out there, a lot of smart people that are practicing medicine and have the same kind of thoughts that I did and need to have the opportunity to bring those forth and try to put them into action. But my basic idea is that the goods and services that are traded in the healthcare economy need to switch from being volume-based to being value-based. And I define value very, very simply. I realize there's, I had a colleague once tell me that there's seven ways to define value, but uh, I simply define value in healthcare as Michael Porter does as quality per unit of cost. So if quality goes up or stays the same and cost goes down, then you have achieved higher value for the patients that we serve. Now, even in that value equation, there are so many pieces and parts to really parse out and to understand. So first of all, what is quality? Well, we're really in the very nascent stages of trying to define that. I spend a lot of my time, I still do some consulting work, still do some work with physician organizations. And one of the things that really ruffles the feathers of my fellow physicians is, well, you're going to define quality and I don't agree with the way you're defining it. And you're expecting me to check off all these boxes and use evidence-based medicine but I don't really think that's high quality. I think that's just quote unquote cookbook medicine, et cetera. So you get a lot of pushback just in terms of trying to define and measure quality. And cost, goodness knows, or even worse measuring that. In fact, most of healthcare still operates under the illusion that cost is the cost to the payers, the cost to the third-party administrators, the cost to the people that actually send you a check after you provide a healthcare service. And until we get beyond that and try to mimic many, many other parts of the economy where costs are the cost of producing the goods and services for sale in this economy, and then on top of those basic costs, 
what manufacturers call cost of goods sold. Then we add on margin because goodness knows, you know, we are a capitalistic society and a a capitalistic economy. So we need to have a profit built in there. But we need to, first of all, have pricing in this country somehow connected to cost. I've written a couple of articles about what I call the price-cost disconnect. If you go into almost any hospital healthcare system in this country, when they negotiate prices on an annual basis with the payers, with the health insurers, they do that in a global fashion. They come in and they say, well, if you'll give us 8% more than you gave us last year, you know, we'll figure out how to allocate that 8% more amongst all the services we provide. And that's why you get crazy things like colonoscopy costing five times as much at one hospital than it does at another hospital down the street when it's the exact same service. If we went in and said, it costs us a thousand bucks to do a screening colonoscopy, and we've got to get a 5% margin on that, then you could sit down and you could figure out what it would cost or what you should charge for that colonoscopy. You could make that transparent to the patients that came to you for those services. If they didn't like your price, they could go down the street and try to find somebody who did it less expensively. But at the same time, you need to also report your quality of doing that colonoscopy. And at the end of the day, then, what you're really selling is value. You're selling quality per unit of cost. And we don't do that. We put billboards up all over the landscape saying we're the best, we're the five-star hospital, we're the only one that got, uh, a friend of mine once said, hip, hip, hooray, we're one of the 400, 100 best hospitals in the country. And he's right, you know, everybody puts out these lists and literally every hospital in the country makes one of the lists or or more. And so bragging that you're on this list of 100 best hospitals, well, there's probably 400 of them uh, out there that can make the claim. But the bottom line is that there has to be a connection between cost and price There has to be a way of proving that if you cut costs, which certainly there's a lot of waste in the system that should allow us to do that, and maintain quality while you cut those costs, because we don't want to repeat the managed care mistakes of the 1990s when the idea was cut costs, but quality be damned. So everybody cut costs. Some quote-unquote gatekeepers made a fortune doing that, got a lot of quote-unquote bonuses for shared savings, but the quality was awful. The patients hated it. You had, you had things like drive-by deliveries and mastectomies. You had even providers who were saying, I didn't go into medicine to just say no all the time. No, you don't need that test. No, you don't need that procedure. No, you don't need that prescription. No, you don't need to be admitted to the hospital. No, you don't need to go to the emergency department. That's not what drove most of us to go into medicine in the first place. So again, the overarching imperative is driving down costs, 
and maintaining validity. Now, what needs to change the original question, which I will answer here, is what needs to change on the payer side of things to make that happen? Well, again, value-based reimbursements need to become real. They need to become a real part of the marketplace. They need to be, be more than just a little smidgen of the total way that healthcare is paid for in this country because we'll just throw that out to give the people who are after value-based reimbursements a, a bone and you know we'll just keep the rest of it fee for service and home won't notice because we're going to do this bundled payment over here or we're going to do this shared savings model over here all of which are when you really dig down deep into them maybe not even real value-based reimbursements after all so the insurance companies I like to say are as wedded to fee-for-service healthcare delivery as are the providers. And I'm not saying the providers are guiltless, but both sides need to jump off the cliff and make it happen. I just don't quite honestly see that happening anywhere very fast on the commercial side. I do think CMS is moving more in that direction. And quite honestly, I never thought I would say this. Certainly, I wouldn't have said this 40 years ago. But I really think probably some form of value-based care for all, say a, a Medicare Advantage type plan, where the risk is held by the providers, not by the insurance companies just serving as middlemen. I think that's probably the best model I've seen so far. But again, lots of smart people out there, and there's probably lots of other models that we could look at that might solve the problem. I wanted to bring up the idea of clinical integration. You know, you talked about your experience in healthcare systems, and a lot of individuals think that, or, or they consider clinical integration as fundamental for many models of high-value clinical care delivery to succeed. But we know that CINs are filled with many legal and regulatory obstacles, it also involves a major change in the culture of those who participate in a CIN, emphasizing value over volume production. So providers oftentimes are not ready to make a significant of a change yet. They acknowledge the one foot in both boats model, where they try to operate in both a value-based and a volume-based business model. And the highly complicated environment that that is to sustain over the long term. It's important to note that CINs offer their members great flexibility that support value-based care. A well-constructed CIN can function as a Medicare ACO, collection of patient-centered medical homes, a collection of primary care groups participating in CPC+, disparate groups participating in bundled payment model, and other alternative payment models soon to appear on the horizon. In your opinion, is the clinical integration of providers the best vehicle for delivering value-based health care? If so, how can we avoid the pitfalls of consolidation that have been shown to raise healthcare expenditures in many markets following major provider M&A activity? Yeah, so I really think clinical integration is the solution and a solution as an alternative to mass employment of physicians by healthcare systems, which we've already kind of talked about the downside of that. And certainly a better solution than the hyper-competitive private practice model that I grew up in for so many years, where, again, the idea that 
you would clinically integrate even to the extent of referring patients to the other providers who could prove that they provided better quality, better outcomes, rather than the providers that you played golf with on Wednesday afternoon. That's where we need to go. Is it difficult? As you mentioned, it is, and it is because changing a culture is much, much, much harder than setting up a single member LLC or writing some bylaws or even going out there and trying to contract for value-based services. But I think it's, it's essential. I think it's one area, I mean, the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC even says in their guidelines that these organizations need to be physician-led and physician-governed. And if physicians are going to truly kind of take the reins and once and for all exert some leadership and some innovation into the system towards value, then I think a clinically integrated network is the way to go. It's a, it's a hard sell. Most physicians, especially subspecialists or specialists, especially those that are in highly remunerated specialties, kind of look at you like, why would I want to get off this horse? I went and talked to a group of orthopedic surgeons here in Atlanta a few years ago about clinical integration. And at the end, at least they were very honest. They looked at me and they said, you know, you're probably right. It's probably the right thing to do. It's certainly the best thing for patients. But right now we're as happy as pig in mud. That kind of Southern colloquialism really stuck with me because most Providers in certain specialties are as happy as pigs in mud. The fee-for-service model has been very, very good for them. But on the other side, you've got poor old primary care doctors out here who are saying, you know, look, a lot of these models, uh, accountable care organizations, for instance, we are responsible for doing vast majority of the work. We're the ones really responsible for changing the way we practice. We're the ones that are mostly responsible for putting up these metrics by which we're judged. And yet we get the real short end of the stick when it comes to remuneration and compensation. So I think it's difficult, but I uh, again hope that this pandemic, which has been god awful, but one silver lining it may have is that it's convinced everybody that the economic model that we've got in this country for healthcare delivery just got caught with their pants down. And unless we change that, the next time another novel virus comes along, we're going to be right back in the same boat. And we may not even be out of that boat with the one that we've got right now. So I think it's high time we looked at alternatives to how we organize and deliver healthcare. Is clinical integration the model? that I think would work best. Yes, it is. Because if you look at it too, from the patient standpoint, it's the most patient-centered approach. I mean, I think we've all had experiences that either ourselves or with family members where you try to maneuver through the system as it's built right now. And it's just crazy. My mother came and lived with me for a few months before she died, had end-stage heart failure. And I was just lost trying to get her to all her appointments, trying to 
figure out what all her medicines were and when they should be taken. And goodness knows, I really got lost when I tried to go pay her bills. So it's got change. It's not patient-centered. It's splintered. It's siloed. It's provider-centric as opposed to patient-centric. And that, I think, can be something that a clinically integrated network can really change. Well, one other aspect, Mac, of the health system that we need to change is the extreme amount of waste that we have in the system. And you talk about this in your book, how we have anywhere from $760 to $935 billion of healthcare expenditures that go to waste. And a lot of us in the industry, we see that every day. It is just staggering to think about this healthcare economy that's $3.5 trillion in spend in a year. And if we were to eliminate even just 5% of that waste, I mean, that'd be $175 billion that we can put towards other good uses. And there's a lot of examples of ways that we can think about lowering cost to consumers and increasing payments to essential providers such as primary care physicians and increasing government funding of critical services like education and infrastructure and even paying down debt. But one aspect of waste in the healthcare system that I particularly wanted to talk to you about was the electronic medical record. One of the most provocative sections in your book, you you talk about how the HITECH Act which created a mandated use of the electronic health record uh, to build the IT infrastructure necessary to propel the, the healthcare system forward. You talk about how that's really just created more bloated excess in the system. And you discuss about some of the onerous documentation requirements that we have from payers, including CMS, and all that has to be entered in the EMR to reimburse the provider for rendering services. And it really undermines value-based care by taking away face-to-face time with providers. So, Mac, I wanted to just get your perspective on some of the waste that we see, and in particular, on the electronic medical record side. How do we optimize these systems so they can better serve as a vehicle to support population health and create interoperability amongst providers without further burdening them with uh, extra clicks and inefficient workflows at the point of care? Yeah, great question. Going back to my wide-eyed idealism of youth, I can remember well before electronic medical records became a thing, sitting at the nurse's station in the hospital and having the nurses pass around an order sheet and have everybody try to guess what ordering physician had written on that order sheet. It was kind of like that old game of telephone. By the time it got to the end, it was like, who knows what this is, but we'll take the best three out of five guesses and go with that. So I thought electronic medical record systems, it'll correct those kind of simple problems like bad handwriting, which I'm certainly guilty of. But it'll also provide an efficient way for physicians, two sides of, of the street, to communicate with each other or even in their same practice in a much more efficient way than we had done before. Because again, my simple look at medical records is that they're primarily or should be a way for providers to communicate with each other and to produce higher quality of care for the patients that we see. Unfortunately, that's not the way it played out. We got these monstrosities of technology that are primarily 
built in order to document things that can then be turned into billing codes and can then be turned into revenue for the health system that puts these systems into place. And I can't tell you when I got into consulting and spent seven years traveling around the country talking to physicians, their main complaint, their main complaint was about their electronic medical record system. And yes, there's some that they like better than others and some that they just almost uniformly hate. But in general, everybody thinks that electronic medical record systems that we have didn't fulfill their promise. They did not provide for better communication about patient care. They did not provide for even safer patient care. And last but not least, they added so much extra time and energy to the provider's day that they created a huge bucket of waste that the patients hate. The patients hate when they go to see the doctor and the doctor's face is in the computer screen the whole time they're talking to them. The doctors hate it because, again, their day doesn't end when they see their last patient and scribble their last note. It ends when they're tired and trying to remotely type in that last note at home. And it's just a huge waste in the system, which, as you put it, three and a half trillion dollar system can ill afford to have that much waste. And I don't know if it's 20%. I don't know if it's 50%. But as I wrote in the book, if it's even 5% and we were able to get at that, wow, that's a lot of money and a lot of money that we're going to need for other things, especially as we spend more and more and money on things like infrastructure and social benefits, which I think we should. But nevertheless, it's going to be more difficult, I think, politically to resist the pressure to, hey, we've got to cut costs in healthcare. So what do we do? Do we go in with a scalpel and try to cut waste and inefficiency? Or do we go in with a sledgehammer or an axe and try to do it by mandating pricing and really lowering the reimbursement, especially on the, on the CMS federal side. Mac, I wanted to talk a little bit about the disconnect in healthcare between the cost of producing services and the subsequent price charged to the consumer who buys the services. And the disconnect leads to several negative consequences within that healthcare industry that must be remedied for effective reform of this sector of the American economy. And these negative consequences related to the price-cost disconnect include cost shifting, decreased transparency, employed physician ancillary services that drive up costs, generalized medical cost inflation, poor quality, disregard for the consumer, erosion of the utility of pricing, and dysfunctional market pricing. How should we address the price-cost disconnect? So prices in healthcare accurately reflect the underlying costs of delivering healthcare goods and services. Yeah, let's go back to good old Adam Smith and remember that invisible hand. So he envisioned that in a functioning economy, you've got two parties, the buyer and the seller, if you will, and they come to the table and they negotiate or bargain until both of them can walk away feeling like they've benefited from that transaction. And the way that they do that is that, again, one side feels like 
you know, I really want what you've got to sell. I'm willing to pay the price if that good or service is in short supply and realize that you're going to charge me more for it if it is. And the seller realizes that if they've got a lot of services to sell, but not much demand for it, they're going to have to lower that price and they're going to have to adjust that. But in the end, you come to a point where supply and demand cross on the scale, and that's the price point. In healthcare, though, there's many, many factors that disrupt that very simple transaction. First of all, the buyer and the seller at the table are rarely, if ever, the actual producers of the services or the actual purchasers of the services. So what you have is you have insurance companies sitting down with large healthcare systems that may employ everything from primary care doctors to high-priced surgeons and produce services all the way from taking care of kids with runny noses to open-heart surgery or transplants. And the insurance company who's there to represent the purchasers of those services But really, their business model is to try to get as much as they can out of either the premium dollar that they charge those actual purchasers of the services, the insured employers. And they do that by, again, moving around of the medical loss ratio and cost shifting that goes on within that premium dollar so that they maximize their share of that premium, or they represent self-insured employers and serve as third-party administrators for those employers where they take their dollars and they go out and administer a health plan for that employer and they charge for that on a commission basis. So I call that the per-click business model where It doesn't matter if you need that MRI scan for your low back pain. It doesn't matter if you need that prescription drug that costs five times more than the cheaper one that does just as good to the insurance company that administering that, that's a click and they get that commission and they don't really care about trying to drive down costs. They just want to put as many claims as they can through that TPA model and maximize their returns on that business transaction. So right there, you've got two parties coming to the table that may not even represent the buyer or the seller very well anyway of the goods and services. The second thing is, is that, as you mentioned, and we talked about earlier, the seller comes to the table. And they say, well, I want to do appendectomies for anybody that comes to my hospital and has appendicitis. But they don't negotiate for appendectomies. They negotiate for the global services that they provide. And appendectomy may be a very, very, very small piece of those global services. And they don't negotiate that out line by line. They just say, okay, we got X amount from Blue Cross Blue Shield, UHC, whoever it is, this year, more than we got last year. And out of that X amount of raise, we're going to give this much more to the surgery service that does the appendectomies. And before you know it, it's like barnacles on a ship. These costs 
began to build up in the cost system. And it's soon that you have absolutely no connection between price and cost, because even if you did have some connection to begin with, so if you go into Ford Motor Company tomorrow and say, how much does it cost you to build a Taurus? They could probably tell you within a very small margin how much it costs them to build a Ford Taurus. But if you go to any hospital in the country and say, how much does it cost you to deliver a baby? How much does it cost you to take out somebody's appendix? On average now, we're not talking about the ones with bad complications or big outliers. On average, how much does it cost you to treat a patient? They look at you like you're from outer space. They say, we have no idea, no idea at all, because they don't do true cost accounting. And thus, they can't back out the cost from the price that they charge and show anybody, especially the consumer who's looking for pricing transparency, the rationale for what's on that fee schedule. So it's a crazy system. It's, I, I was going to say it's like no other that I know of, but really it's very similar, I think, probably to luxury goods. So, you know, if you go buy a meat coat or you go buy a high priced piece of jewelry or you go buy a, a name brand high fashion item, you're going to expect to pay more for that opportunity to walk around with Prada or Gucci or whoever on your label. And people understand that. But in healthcare, it shouldn't be luxury goods to be able to go into a hospital or healthcare system and get a fair price for having a baby or being treated for pneumonia or having your appendix taken out. But it is, and it's not good for the patients, but it's really, really bad for the economy as a whole, because as you get up to 3.5 trillion, now you're talking about close to 20% of all the GDP in this, in this nation. And again, as we mount up debt after debt after debt, that's probably politically not sustainable. So if we want to fix it, I contend we need to fix it from the bottom up through physician leadership as opposed to from the top down through really draconian cuts that are politically driven as opposed to clinically driven. In your book, you talk about the, the flaw in the Relative Value Update Committee, which is responsible for a lot of the disparity in reimbursements that we see that exists between different types of healthcare providers and the American Medical Association through their powerful lobbying organization has concentrated the power and influence of procedurally oriented specialties like surgery and subspecialties and all these different medical subspecialties like cardiology, pulmonology, gastro that perform a lot of procedures. There, there's basically a valuing of the technical over the cognitive services, and it's created this vast disparity, which is having been engineered in the system over time, has created this excess of specialists in a, in a scarcity of primary care physicians, which is contrary to the value-based care movement. So I just wanted to get your perspective on how you would suggest that a physician-led revolution and value-based care could correct for this disparity in representation between procedurally oriented specialties and cognitive oriented specialties 
on the RUC and how should we be thinking about how to drive relative value units differently on the CPT basis? And then in the value movement specifically, are you hopeful that eventually primary care is going to get the seat at the table that it so rightly deserves? Well, I'm always hopeful. I'm the ultimate eternal optimist. But I think it's going to be hard because not only do we need to reform the healthcare economy, but we need to reform the political economy in general that is behind a lot of this. And you mentioned that the AMA is a large lobbying organization. And in that regard, they've done a remarkable job because when you look at things, They're the ones that publish the uh, CPT books. They're the ones that publish the RVU that are are counted against each of those CPTs. Those decisions are made by this RUC committee. And again, most of the people that make that up, most of the providers that make that up, are procedurally oriented providers. And that's long been obvious to me that if you stick tubes into people or cut things out of people or x-ray people, you're going to get paid a lot more than thinking about people or talking to people or just spending time with people. And to me, that's not what medicine's all about. One of the reasons I'm an internist as opposed to a surgeon is because, number one, I tried to be a surgeon, but realized I couldn't tie my shoes without hurting myself. So I quickly switched into a more cognitive-oriented specialty. But in all seriousness, it's maddening when you think of the time and energy it takes to practice in a cognitive specialty like primary care and the relative difference in how you're compensated for that. And I always say that there's a lot of waste in the system, but I think one of the big waste is the discrepancy between what we pay proceduralists versus what we pay cognitivists, if that's a word. And if we tried to bring that closer together, it seems to me that would also free up a lot of dollars that could be used for a lot of good things, not the least of which would be to pay other types of providers that more and more we realize are as important as the physician providers in this whole team approach to medical services. So you've got advanced practice providers, nurse practitioners, and PAs that certainly can fill a lot of the gaps, especially in in primary care. You've got social workers, you've got behavioral therapists, you've got care coordinators, you've got pharmacists, you've got rehab people. It's really become a team sport, and it's not just which kind of compensation or how much compensation any individual physician gets. It really should be how many dollars do we have to spend overall, and how can we best allocate those dollars So we can attract people into primary care specialties and compensate them fairly for the time it takes to become a general internist or a family physician and for the real time and energy it takes to manage patients uh, with chronic diseases and all the issues that 
they come to primary care doctors with. So yeah, I think it's very, very necessary to change that. I think the current model of how physician compensation, I mean, it's, I'm a big picture guy. So to me, it's not very hard to figure out if you've got somebody whose RVUs are worth $50 an RVU versus somebody whose RVUs are worth $20 an RVU. Well, that one who's pumping out $50 per RVU is going to make a lot more money and be the ones that are given a lot higher salaries by those that are employing them than the $20 per RVU. And that has nothing to do really with the value. And like I say, I, I don't deny if I, if I need surgery, I want a good surgeon and I want one that really knows his stuff. But I don't think how much they make or how much they produce or how much volume they can generate is a good gauge of that, of quality. What I really want is somebody who, who can show me that their outcomes are high and they do things efficiently. Mac, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about bundled payments. The idea of bundled payments is, as the name implies, to bundle up the charges for each of the services to derive a single amount, i.e. a composite price, derived by summing the prices for each step along the care process. And the challenge with bundled payments is that most hospitals, health systems, and certainly few physician practices have, as you've discussed, the cost accounting skills and capability to know the actual cost of each step in the care process for a procedure like a total knee replacement surgery. In addition, the most used model adds the fee-for-servant payments related to each service rendered along the care pathway, subtracting a discount, then using the sum to determine the bundled price. Another problem with bundled payments is how to compensate the various providers that come together in an integrated and coordinated fashion to achieve high quality outcomes and lower costs. I'm interested in your thoughts about how we can more effectively design and implement bundled payment models to improve costs and quality outcomes. Yeah, bundled payments are interesting because if you go back to the late 1990s, the Rand Corporation did a study which looked at which payment model is the most likely to succeed, if you will, in terms of driving higher value into the healthcare system. And the one that they came upon and really touted was bundled payments. And to me, the dirty little secret of bundled payments is that while they're touted as a value-based reimbursement model, they really are a not very well-disguised fee-for-service reimbursement model that the payers try to convince providers is a value-based reimbursement model. So to make a, a really, really simple example. Let's say you've got somebody that needs a total knee replacement and they go in and they see the orthopedist and the orthopedist says, yep, you need that knee replaced. And they go into the hospital, they get the knee replaced, and then post-operatively they go home and they get some rehab afterwards. So you've got really four major players that work there. One is the orthopedic surgeon, 
one is the rehab specialist, one is the hospital, and then the fourth, and this may even be a surprise billing piece, the anesthesiologist that gets involved in that. And there may be a lot of other players, hospitalists and primary care doctors and cardiologists, et cetera, et cetera. But in general, let's just take that kind of real simple four-player model. What most bundled payment models will do is they'll come in and they'll say, okay, we've taken each of the average charges that a orthopedic surgeon, an anesthesiologist, a hospital would charge for an uncomplicated total knee replacement. And we've taken 10% discount off of that. And that's the price we will pay you for doing that surgery on a bundled pricing basis. Why do they take that 10% off? Well, they say, everybody getting to the table and saying, we're going to do this in a coordinated fashion, clinically integrated, if you will, uh, will drive efficiencies and economies that wouldn't happen otherwise. So we're going to take that 10% right off the top and say, that doesn't count because just the fact that we're bundling everything means that you're going to be more efficient. So we take the 10% back to begin with. Then you get done and everybody submits their charges and they get paid on a fee-for-service basis. And their fee-for-service charges are paid out against that global price. So it's really a set of fee-for-service billings disguised as a bundled payment. There really is no single check that goes out and then all the four players in the procedure jump on top of it like a rugby scrum and try to get their piece of it. No, it's all done on a fee-for-service basis. And that then, other than that 10%, which they kind of assume you're going to take by, by cutting out costs and being more efficient, that then really doesn't drive a lot of efficiency or lowering of costs. And in fact, even that 10% discount, that doesn't go back to the insured company or the certainly the individuals that are insured for that surgery. That goes back to the insurance company that puts this all together and they use it to pay higher salaries to their executives and build more office space and expand their share of the market, that does not go back to the actual recipients of that bundled surgery. So again, bundled payments, I think, are kind of a concept that sound good, but when you really start delving into them, aren't good. Now, I think, could you take that model and really improve it by doing cost accounting and saying, how much does it really cost the orthopedic surgeon to come in and do their degree? How much does it cost the hospital to take care and really get those baseline costs, add a margin to that? And that's the bundle price? Absolutely. But nobody's doing that. Nobody's looking at it from a kind of a cost of goods sold or cost of services sold basis. They're looking at it as a way of just bundling up fee-for-service payments and, and then taking the the savings out of that, which comes through some sort of coordinated care and putting it in your pocket. Well, Mac, uh, this has been a really informative interview. I thought as we finish up our conversation today, I wanted to see if you had any parting thoughts that you can share with our 
physician listeners out there on how they should reestablish their role as leaders who are willing to apply their knowledge, experience, and creativity to the entrepreneurial development of new high value-based care models within the healthcare economy. Any parting thoughts for those out there trying to figure out how to take the mantle and lead in this new era of value-based care? Yeah, I think perhaps even using myself as an example (laughs) of what not to do. I think more and more physicians need to realize that they have a lot of underutilized leverage, given that for the most part, they still control the patient and can influence the patient greatly in terms of where they receive services and how those services are rendered. So I think whether it's through a clinically integrated network, through a clinic model, healthcare system, through a lot of innovative approaches. I even listened to your last podcast by the Rosen Hotel and Resort people, and I just thought that was fascinating that if you give physicians the opportunity to design unique operating systems and really give them the opportunity to do that, not just in in name, but in reality. And it's amazing what physician entrepreneurs can come up with. I'm a big fan of places, uh, these Medicare Advantage programs like ChenMed and Oak Street that are out there. I think direct primary care has a lot of promise to it. So I encourage my physician colleagues not to just run to your local healthcare system and say, save me from the vagaries of the healthcare economy and give me a stable salary and let me just see paints and you worry about the business aspect of it. Because if you do that, I guarantee you in a few years, you're going to be kind of sorry you did that. And I realize there are some places that employ lots of doctors and they're happy. But if you look close, most of those places are large physician-run, physician-governed clinics like Mayo Clinic and others, and then or big academic health systems, which again, for the most part, physicians really do have a seat at the table. But if you think you're going to go to your local community hospital and say, again, save me from this, I can't stand it any longer. I'm a lowly primary care doctor, and I'm tired of getting the short end of the stick. Think twice about that and see if you can find some like-minded colleagues out there to put your heads together and figure out maybe there's a better way to skin this cat. Well, thank you so much, Mac, for joining us this week in the Race to Value. Really look forward to seeing how the book does. Again, it was a great honor to write the foreword for it, and I appreciate all your work and really galvanizing physicians across the country to help us reimagine this new healthcare economy. Thanks so much for your leadership in the industry. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me today and I appreciate you writing with me, Eric. Hopefully we'll have an opportunity to do that again sometime. I hope so. Thanks again, Mac. Thank you, Mac. Appreciate your time. Thank you.